0: We are in Nehemiah, and I just want to, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. Let me tell quickly the story leading up to Nehemiah 3, and you know, this story is a huge part of the whole story of the Old Testament, where God is faithful, God's people are not. Sound familiar? Uh, so Israel, uh, they, they, don't, they don't obey the covenant, they, they rebel against God. Uh, the ten tribes of the north are taken by King Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. They, you never hear from them again. The two tribes of the south uh, are taken by Babylon in 586 uh, B.C., and they go, many of them go to Babylon. You know the story of Daniel, for example, and all of that. So you have, you have this uh, population of Jews that are not in Israel. They are in Babylon, and one of them is this guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah rises to the rank of being cupbearer to the king, uh, which was a very trusted uh, place. Not only did you present the cup, but I think you sampled it to make sure And if you didn't die, then he would drink it. Uh, and so he was very close with the king, very trusted with the king. And Nehemiah hears that the first group of Jews who had gone back to Jerusalem had failed to rebuild the wall. He hears that the wall is still in ruins. He is he is heartstruck by this news. He prays to God, God, please help me if there's something that I can do. And sure enough, there he is standing before the king of Babylon one day, and he has a sad countenance, and the king says, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, well, my homeland, my home city, Jerusalem, the walls, it's still in ruins, and, and it's just, I'm so sad about it. And Nehemiah, or the, the king says, well, what can we do? And Nehemiah says, well, funny you should ask. And he has the list of things, and the king says... You go do that and so nehemiah takes all of these supplies and the sanction of the king of babylon most powerful man in the world back to jerusalem and we pick up the story here now in, with in in chapter two where he goes and he surveys the wall at night and he sees that indeed it is broken down the the city of god is the wall is, is in terrible condition And uh, because the Babylons had basically sacked Jerusalem and and broken down the walls. And so he says to them uh, in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And so there is, the, there is the call there. Here's the mission, this is the vision, this is what we want to do, we want to rebuild this wall. And so chapter three of Nehemiah is the detailed story of how they did that, and who was involved in it, and what it took to do it, and specifically who built what part of the wall and where they did so. And the chapter is structured around the nine gates around the city of of Jerusalem. And we find that there are 42 different groups of people or families that are all listed as part of the people who rebuilt this wall. They labored in their particular section of the wall. Now we come to find out later in Nehemiah, I believe, that that they were assigned to the part of the wall near their own home. So talk about motivation, motivation. For building a quality, uh, a quality wall, perhaps we should try that with the road construction crews. <laughs> You're all going to build road in front of your house, and we'll see if maybe the quality improves, but I digress in saying that. But the reason the gates are so important, and these gates are listed, is these were the strategic points. If somebody was going to attack, they would attack at the gate, and so the gates are, are listed here. Now, chapter 3, my Bible has 32 verses in chapter 3. I am not going to read all of them. I am simply going to read the first 10 verses because it basically gives you an idea of a sense of the whole thing. So, beginning now, chapter 3, verse 1. Again, grace for some of these names. I'm sure you'll, you'll do that for me. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hacchus, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakai, son of Meshazabel. You hanging with me here? All right. Repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joidah, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Bosadiah, I think repaired the gate of Yishanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired uh, Melatai the Gibeonite and Jadon the Moronathite, the, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the son of the, the seat of the governor and the province beyond the river. Next, to, you get the idea. Maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm getting worn out just reading these verses today. It's not so easy. So. What I want to do today is I want to give you four words that explain all of this in chapter 3. Okay, This chapter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, part of Holy Scripture, God's will for this chapter to be here, even though we kind of struggle to maybe read it, there is a purpose to it. This is like reading the, the genealogies in Genesis, where this name, this name, this name, this name, you're like, what is the point of this? God has a point to it. And God is a point to Nehemiah 3, and it relates very much to what we are trying to do here at the HP campus and in the HP community. What we have here is a description of how to build a wall. And what I'm going to say is it's also how we build a church, okay? How we build a wall and how we build a church. And I got four words to describe this. If you're taking notes, here's the first one. Vision leads to motivation. Vision and motivation. Again, uh, you have to know the story and to realize the unique situation that these Jews were in to, to be in the holy city, to see the consequences of their own sin, and uh, to, to realize, you know, 70 years in Babylon and all of this, this was not, it would seem, what uh, they had in mind when their forefathers spent forty years in the wilderness, conquered the promised land under Joshua, and here we have then this these people who have been living in Jerusalem, and to realize that Joshua or not Joshua, Nehemiah gets up and he says, "Let's rebuild the wall." We would not expect chapter three, not if it was a Baptist church, or maybe a Died in the wool Methodist or something. Because people back then are a lot like people today, where the status quo has a kind of gravitational pull to it. And just because somebody gets up and flaps their gums and says, hey, let's go do this, that, or the other, it doesn't mean everyone's like, I'm on board. Let's go get them. Let's rebuild the wall. No, normally in, you know, amongst God's people, there's sort of a reserve where I don't know about that. I'm not so quick to jump on board with this whole thing. And for 15 years, these people in Jerusalem had lived amongst the ruins. They'd lived by that big, you know, that big section of the wall that was uh, next to their, to their garden. And they had walked past the gate that was broken down on the way to the market. And for 15 years, they just got used to this being the way that it is. This is just, this is normal This is status quo. And human nature is to be complacent with things and to assume that's the way that it will always be. And they had lost vision of why they had gone back from Babylon in the first place. They had lost vision for God's purpose for Jerusalem as that city on a hill. And they began to think things like this. We're not strong enough. To rebuild these walls. We don't have the resources to rebuild these walls. We don't have the expertise to build these walls. So let's just accept that the walls broken down is the way it's going to be. And let's just go on and do life. In church world, this is the very famous phrase that God's people like to say this is the way we've always done it. If you've ever served on a committee in any church, you have heard, this is the way we've always done it. And when you say that, it's like it's in the Bible, that this is the way that we are going to do it. It's how we've always done it. My daddy did it. My grandpa daddy did it this way. And this is the way it's always been. And this is the way it's always going to be. But then Nehemiah shows up on the scene. Here comes this guy with this letter from the king and all these resources, and he tells the story of God's own work of grace to allow him to be there in the first place. And Nehemiah looks at the walls, and he looks at the people, and he says, brothers and sisters, let's rebuild the wall, and let's remove this disgrace from amongst us. And you can see, picture the people hearing this, the wheels are turning in their minds. you mean... You mean those walls? You mean that rubble? It's been there since I was a kid. Rebuild these things. Can we do it? And they looked at Nehemiah and they saw the vision and they saw they heard his testimony and they believed that they could do it. They shared the vision. That's the point. First word, vision. There was a shared vision amongst the people. This is what we got to do. Let's get on board. Let's get after this thing. And between the lines of the chapter, there is this oil to the whole thing where everybody was on board with the mission and, and with the vision. I think if you could have uh, go back in time and, and uh, as they're, you know, clink, 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 rebuilding the wall and all of that, and ask them, what are you doing? They would say, we are rebuilding the wall to the glory of God. What they didn't say is, you know, we're the priests, we're the Tekoites, you know, we're the this, we're the that. They didn't identify as a clan, not primarily, they didn't identify in their roles in society. They saw themselves as a part of this great vision, and that's what vision does. It motivates people to get on board, to invest their own time and talent and treasure, and to be a part of what God is doing. And if they would not have had that shared vision, because there's so much more to this story in Nehemiah, and the things that they had to overcome, and threats of people running in with swords and cutting them up as they, as they rebuilt the wall. I mean, how many of you would have come to church today if we said, you know, bring your weaponry. We think there will be a battle during the service. Some of you would actually get into that, probably. You're like, this is the church for me. But I would suspect fear and other human nature things would easily distract us and keep us from getting on board and personally investing in the vision of what we're doing. If vision is this critical, let's ask the question, what is the vision around here? What is the vision for Bethel Church, broadly, and for this campus particularly. What are we doing here? Here is the mission statement of our church. Bethel Church exists to make disciples whose lives are all about him. Is that a grand vision? Is that a big vision? More importantly to to us, is that a biblical vision? Well, here we are a week after, all about him Sunday. As we talked about from from 2 Corinthians 4, which says, We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and we his servants for Jesus' sake. And what I said last Sunday was, you wanna, there's a lot of verses like that, but that encapsulates what we're trying to do here. We are not preaching ourselves, we are not primarily promoting. Bethel Church, because our church is a means to another end. And if you don't get that part of the vision, you're going to be perpetually disappointed around here. We are not preaching us. We are not promoting us. We're not puffing us. We are promoting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the one who's who's worthy of your life and your family and your days and your weeks, your entire lives, He is worthy of dedicating all of it to him. And we are collectively then, as a local church, a means to that end. We are nurturing a love for Jesus Christ, we hope, in you. We are nurturing a Christ-likeness in nature and character, hopefully, in you. And the goal of this is for your life and the culture of our church collectively to be Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving, because it is all about him. That's the vision, okay? If you're on board with that vision, you're going to love, generally, I would say, what we do around here. If you want us to be a self-promoting church, you're going to be frustrated. If you want us to be a you-promoting church, you're going to be frustrated. Because the purpose isn't primarily us, you, all that. It's about him. Okay? That's the vision of the church. And so when we are a people that are united by a vision, there comes then the motivation with it to fulfill the mission. And we see that in Nehemiah 3. And we very much want to see it here in 2022. You maybe have heard uh, uh, a, a good illustration of how this works, and as some of you know, I love World War II, and perhaps half my sermon illustrations are somehow related to World War II, so bear with me as I give you another one today. You know, it's fascinating to see in, in the European theater how, uh, how quickly the Nazis really overtook France, you know, for example. Which, for some of you that know the history of France, not that surprising, actually. Uh, I don't mean anything negative to the French people that are here, but uh, it, uh, truly not that surprising. And, uh, but in England, England stood, they were, they were alone. And you're like, how did they survive the Blitz and all of that? Well, there was somebody that united the whole place around a vision. And, of course, his name was Winston Churchill. And Churchill said this, when he became the uh, prime minister, he said, see if, see if this doesn't sound sort of Nehemiahic. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. Here's where it gets so good We shall fight uh, in France. We shall fight in the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall, and this is famous phrase, never surrender. And here you had millions of people listening on the radio and hearing that very compelling vision, and it united the entire country together in the one single cause, which was to defeat the Nazis. Many of them thought to themselves, I don't know how we're going to do it, but that chap on the radio thinks we can. And so we are going to give it our best. We are going to fight to save, amen, our little island. Our little island, and indeed, and indeed they did. And this is the necessary first step in building a church. And it also highlights one of the dangers of being around a church for a long time, where familiarity allows sort of this sort of creep of complacency and sort of a I'm a comfortable here and i got friends here now. And, and it slowly becomes kind of about me. And what I want to remind you as a campus is this is not about you. We are here to reach Hobart and Portage and the surrounding areas with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that ought to motivate us to rise up together and to build the church of Jesus Christ. By the way, we have a guarantee, unlike England, we have a guarantee that we are going to in the end win here. Remember, this is the church of Jesus Christ who Jesus said is my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it so rise up HP campus the vision is grand and the purpose is noble and the need is great so vision and motivation that's the first second is participation okay participation look at verse 1 again then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. The first person mentioned who is involved in the project is the last person you would expect to be involved in the project. It is the high priest. Okay, This is the religious class. These are the clergy, and everybody knows the clergy don't work. I mean, if you're having a work day, he's the one that shows up with the donuts from County Line Orchard, tells a few jokes, supports everybody, slaps them on the back, and then heads for the golf course. Don't ask me how I know that. (laughs) The high priest worked on the wall. I mean, everybody else, you know, all the commoners that are working on the wall, they're like, the high priest is here working on the wall. I never thought I'd ever see him break a sweat. You're kidding me. I mean, if he's involved in this thing, whoa, this is a big deal. Because this wasn't priestly work. You can read through Leviticus, it doesn't say anywhere in there and make sure those priests are building the wall in case it breaks down. No. They were involved in the teaching. They were reading the scrolls. They were reading the law. They were teaching, you know, maybe helping the priest with the sacrifice. That's about it. Like this, none of it's manual labor, and you didn't expect to see the high priest, you know, uh, with a with a, a sword or with a hammer and a, a trowel. Certainly not. This was work for the common person, and yet what we find in Nehemiah three is total participation from everybody. From the top down, I mean the high priest, all the way down. Everybody pulled together in order to accomplish this vision. And as you look through the list of people there, you see these odd combinations of people that are working together on the project. So, for example, if you look at verse 8, it says that Uziel, the goldsmith, is laying bricks. And who is working next to him? Hananiah the perfume maker. Now, maybe things are different back then, I don't know. But it just seems to me that a goldsmith, you know, kind of person isn't necessarily hanging out a lot with a man who makes perfume. Odd combination. And that's my point. All these sort of normal, kind of human nature sort of things all went out the window. We're all pulling together. We're all doing it together. Look at verse 12. Everybody's involved. It says, Shalem, son of Holoshel, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Again, we're surprised to see. It's not high priestly work. It probably wasn't viewed in that day as woman's work either. And yet this guy and his daughters are rebuilding this section Of the wall. Now, here's something to realize. Wherever and whenever God does an extraordinary work, he does it through common people. You read this list, you have the high priest, but pretty much everybody else is the normal hoi polloi of the society, the normal, common, everyday people doing an extraordinary work. And, friends, is this any different than us here today? I mean, if we were just to look around uh, the room here, there's many wonderful people, but no famous people here. There's many uh, godly people, but uh, I don't think there's a billionaire in the room. Who are we? We are normal people. Normal, everyday people. And yet, when you look in the Bible and you look at Nehemiah 3, we are exactly the kind of people that God uses to accomplish his extraordinary work. And why does God use the common people to do it? Because who gets the glory then, okay? And indeed, it is him, normal people. Now I wanna show you, though, that not everybody participated. Look at verse five. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. Ah, let's talk about the Tekoites, okay? The Tekoites. There apparently was one group of people who when Nehemiah said, let's rebuild the wall and we're all gonna pitch in and do it, there was one group of people who said, not us, not us, these Tekoites. Apparently they had a problem with pride. There was something about this that was maybe beneath them or that they didn't agree with, so therefore I'm not going to participate. Maybe they didn't like the way that the wall was being built. They didn't, this isn't how you build a wall. If I was in charge, they w- we would be doing this different. And since I'm not in charge, I am going to passively aggressively uh, withhold my participation in protest that this wall is not being done the way that I think it ought to be done. Or maybe they said to themselves, we're the nobles around here. Nobody asked us. And since we're the nobles, and since we think it should go with our approval, and you didn't ask us, we're not going to participate. No, we are standing on the sidelines. Maybe they thought, hey, we're nobles, and we don't get our hands dirty. This is work that is beneath us. Friends, I want you to realize today that God notices those who participate and those who do not. The Tekoites, famous now for non-participation, standing on the sideline, criticizing probably what everybody was trying to do. It reminds me of the, there's a famous story of D.L. Moody, where this woman was critical of the way that he did evangelism. And uh, he said, well, ma'am, my, my doing evangelism poorly is better than you're not doing evangelism at all. D.L. Moody could get away with saying something like that. Uh, but there are some people, sadly many people, in every local church who are a lot like the Tekoites, Okay? They perpetually are on the sideline they have any number of reasons in their heart that justify them doing so. They're not involved in the Lord's work, and they think it's fine. And I just want to note to you in Scripture, in this project, the Holy Spirit notes who does and notes who doesn't. And I would urge you not to allow pride or some hurt in the past at a local church or some sense that it's not being done exactly the way that you would say that it should be done, or if you were in charge the way that you would do it, or some other thing that puts you on the sideline and in your heart justifies not participating in the Lord's work. See here in Nehemiah 3. And this, is, I think, is a struggle that we have. Every congregation does. The famous statement is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I don't know what our percentage is, but it's not 100. And that means that there probably are some of you right here right now that if I was to say, how are you participating in God's kingdom? How are you working and laboring for the things that God is doing? How are you involved in the campus and the the ministries here? Yes, I know it's not exactly perfect. and It's not the way if you were in charge, we would do it, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, you know what? In the end, every day there are people from St. Mary's Hospital and this community, that are dying and going to hell. And God has one plan for saving people from hell, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the means to that is the local church. And we could argue about doing it different, doing it better and all of that, but people are just dying every single day. And God's call for us is to together work to see that people hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Are you a tacoite today? What would it take for you to not be a tacoite and to find a place on the wall and to get busy? You know, Jesus said it this way, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know the happiest people around here? They're not the people that are maybe critical or on the sidelines. It's the sweaty people around here. And this campus, you are blessed with a lot of sweaty, stinky people. I'm telling you. I mean that. There is a high level of servant-heartedness in this campus. And you can just smell it when you walk in the place. (laughs) That wasn't in the notes. I'm just freelancing here a little bit. But it's true. This campus is fantastic, I would say. Better than... than uh, than any of the national averages for sure. But can you imagine going through this season here in Jerusalem and missing out on being a part of this? I mean, here we are thousands of years later. We're still talking about how they rebuilt the wall and how amazingly fast they did it and how it was a work of God. Imagine being in Jerusalem and not being a part of it. So what is your wall today? If you're part of this church, this church is your wall. And the people around you are the wall. We're building into people. We're building into the lives of people. So please participate in that. Here it is the fall. It's a great time to get started in a new way, a new fresh way. How about joining a small group? How about joining one of the ministries? We've had ministry sign-ups sign the last couple weeks. Do something. Do something. Okay? Do something. You're like, I don't know where in the wall I should go. Just get on the wall somewhere. Okay? Participate. Be a part of what God is doing. Don't be a Tekoite. So participation is the second word. Okay? Vision, participation. Here's number three. Is cooperation. Okay? If you look at verse 17, uh, let me just read a little bit of this. Again, you'll get the sense of it. After him the Levites repaired, Rehuam the son of Bani, next to him Hashiab, ruler of the the district of Calah, repaired for his district. After him their brothers repaired, verse 19, next to him, verse 20, after him, verse 21, after him, verse 22, after him, and here's the sense of what I'm getting at, is The whole chapter reads like next to him, 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 all the way around the entire gate. There was this amazing cooperation that was happening amongst the people, many of whom probably up to that point maybe didn't get along, didn't like each other, but it didn't matter. They were all together. In fact, in this one chapter, over 20 times you will find and next to him, and next to him, and beside him. And that is purposeful in the letter. It's giving a sense of the high cotton days that this was for God's people. Because everybody was cooperating, there was a great sense of unity. Everyone doing his own part. Everyone building in front of his house. One person couldn't be lazy because you had this guy down the wall a little bit who was working like crazy. You ever been a a part of a project like that? Where you know, you're, you're doing something and then there, there's this you know these people over there They're working so hard and you see how diligent they are and it inspires you to work even harder. And that's what was going on here. And here's where we find what to do with the little interpersonal annoyances that you always have whenever you're working with other people. Okay? What do you do with it? You just die to it. Because the mission is so important. The things that you would otherwise, you know, you find a group of people, a church, that have lost sense of the vision of the Great Commission and why we're here and what we're doing. There will be a thousand reasons not to like each other. And the more time you spend with each other, the longer the list comes. But when God's people have their eyes on the mission that Jesus has given us, all of these otherwise divisive and interpersonal annoyances, they, they fall so far down the importance level, why? Because we are doing something together. And what we are doing is so important, we're not gonna allow the petty differences to get in the way. If you've ever been a part of church where the petty differences have become so important that people are all with each other, they have lost sight of the vision, okay? So how are you doing with that today? How's the campus doing with it? Are you on board with the vision? Are you excited about the mission? Do you have a grand vision of the glory of Jesus Christ and the privilege it is to be under his grace? To understand what it means to be a part of the church and that God has given you talents and, and, and gifts that he wants you to use in some way that will be a blessing and deeply meaningful to you? To rejoice when we baptize people who are coming, you know, people that are testifying to the grace of God in their life. To rejoice in all these sort of incremental changes uh, that God is doing in in people's lives. It's wonderful. It's what I love about being a pastor, frankly. Do you have a vision for that? If so, you'll get along fine with people. If not, you probably won't. It takes tremendous teamwork. Teamwork. I got speculating about what happens when uh, you don't have this going on. Mrs. So-and-so didn't appreciate my such-and-such. Not like I think she should have. If only these pastors were more, fill in the blank. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. That's the sort of thing you hear in a church or amongst people that don't have a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And as I said earlier, every day, people from this community within a few miles of this location are dying and going to hell forever. And the church is the repository of the gospel that saves. That ought to motivate us. Okay? And to be a team and to work together and to cooperate. Fourth and final is this. Is recognition. Okay? Recognition. We see in this chapter that Nehemiah notices the labors, those that labored well. If you look at verse uh, uh, 11, that Jalkaiha and Hashib, they repaired their section and then they went on and repaired another section. That Barak zealously repaired also, not just his section, but another section. We have the uh, the residents of Zonoah, wherever that was. They rebuilt the valley gate and another 500 yards. And then we have the men of Tekoa. Apparently the the nobles of Tekoa, these were the bad guys, but the men of Tekoa, these were valiant guys. They repair another section as well. And I'm just highlighting here that God notices the little things like this. You might serve him and think, you know, uh, the church didn't acknowledge me, or the leader of the ministry didn't acknowledge me. But I want you to see that in Holy Scripture, that God is acknowledging these efforts and things. And I oftentimes, when, I, when I, I think of people and talk with people that serve in ministry, I know there are a hundred times that you go beyond any expectation, that you serve, give time and, and effort, and we don't even know that you're doing it. If we did, hopefully we would say thank you or acknowledge it in some way, but in a way, it doesn't matter because God notices all these things. And in the end, that's who we're doing it for anyway, amen? Okay? Is for the Lord. And I love, the, imagine reading the Bible and there was not one acknowledgement of any sort of effort that somebody did for God. We think he doesn't care. He doesn't notice. So why go to the trouble? But it's the opposite of that. We find that he notices that it's not 400 yards that they, they did in addition. They did 500 yards. Right down to the number God acknowledges in Scripture. And the Bible tells us that all of us someday are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that all of us are going to give an account of our life to the Lord Jesus. And this is not a judgment of like heaven or hell, okay? That's known as the great white throne judgment. This is a judgment where he is going to evaluate and reward us for the quality of our service to him in our life. And all of these sacrifices, and all of these givings, and all of these servings, they will be recognized by Jesus. They will be commended by him. They will be rewarded by him. Those that are lazy and uninvolved will receive nothing. And that may depress you, but I'm wanting to encourage you, you're not dead yet. You have an opportunity today to serve and to steward this day, to steward this morning, as the service concludes, the opportunity to encourage and to serve God's people, all of this is an opportunity for you to use this one life that God has given you, this one cause, and to know that I will stand before God and give an account. Imagine from these individuals Barak, well done, faithful servant. Hashub, well done, faithful servant. Nehemiah, well done, faithful servant. Jesus is a rewarder of those who faithfully serve him, and he stands ready to do so for the faithfulness of our labors to him. And so my encouragement today, HB Campus, is let's share the vision. Let's get on board with the vision. Let's allow that vision to be motivation for us. Let's involve ourselves through participation. Let's make sure our participation is a cooperation. And by doing so, we can anticipate a heavenly commendation from Jesus Christ himself, Oh, to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. As your pastor, I hope that's what you get. I sometimes say, I want to be the kind of pastor that one minute after you're dead, you're glad I was your pastor. And if you hear the words that I'm saying now and dedicate your life to serving the Lord Jesus Christ, one minute after you're dead, you'll be glad that you did. And I'm glad today I got to tell you.